This is Find Your Voice, the First Amendment Voice podcast that features everyday people impacting their communities in positive ways. Are you tired of the divisive rhetoric by politicians and media personalities? Interested in the discussions around sensitive issues but fear what people might think if you offer your opinion? Listen in to FAV's monthly podcast to be inspired and to hear a new story each episode about someone impacting their community in an encouraging way. All right, we have uh, Brenda Wells in studio. She is the executive director of the I-5 Freedom Network. Uh, Brenda, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me today. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I was reading up a little bit about your uh, organization, and from what I understand, the name comes from the I-5 Highway, because I guess that's a main yes, uh, no. trafficking avenue, if you will. Yeah, if we were on your side of the country, it would be the I-95, but we're just the I-5 over here. Gotcha. Gotcha. So, um, how did you get involved in this kind of work? Oh, that's not a short answer, but the quickest one is that once I learned that this was a reality, uh, human trafficking happening uh, right here in Orange County in the United States, it's growing faster in the United States than anywhere else, it was a cause that gripped my, uh, my heart and my motivation, and so I tried to find a way to make a difference. And the I-5 Freedom Network is the result of that. So what do you guys do exactly? We are primarily a training and advocacy organization. And um, we do we have five pillars, which sounds like a lot, but they overlap a lot. So we do community awareness training. So anytime somebody wants to learn more, we'll go to churches and rotaries and book clubs and uh, neighborhood washes and any kind of event to just bring more awareness to the issues of community awareness. Okay. We do corporate engagement because when it comes down to it, trafficking, human trafficking is a business model, a profit-based business model. So we want the corporate America for the um, legitimate businesses to be able to do something to fight the illegitimate actions of trafficking. We do uh, hospitality training, which is exactly where we started, training hotels and motels and other hospitality-related industry-type locations to identify and report because so much of the activity happens there. We also do legislative advocacy where we actually look at policies that are being proposed both citywide, state, and national and see how they will intersect on the topic. And then lastly, we do uh, survivor empowerment seminars where we bring workplace skills to survivors of human trafficking ready to reintegrate. Okay. Okay. How long have you guys been doing this now? Um, we are just past our fourth year. We're excited to have our next year. It's going to be our five year for the I five in May five. Okay. <laughs> we're going to be we're, we're just past our four year mark. Okay, congratulations. That's awesome. And uh, is it is it uh, how's it been going for, for you guys? Is it is it hard to uh, get get the community to uh, interface with you guys? Uh, you know, is it hard to get support? You know, like what kind of struggles do you guys go through? to help out, you know, these victims of human trafficking and also to help prevent and inform people of the signs of human trafficking? Uh, There's lots of answers to that question. So when we started with the hotel training, we thought it would be easy. We thought they would really, really want this information. What we found out is as as an industry, uh, there's a lot of competition for their time, and this is not an easy topic for them to wrap their minds around. So... We're struggling getting the hospitality industry to 
want to learn more so they can do more. I think a lot of us, because they don't believe it's a problem, we know differently. Right. Uh, but in terms of like the community issue, like whenever we talk about it, people care. I mean, people really, really resonate with the topic. Usually they know nothing about it. Uh, whenever we go a little deeper, they're always very surprised. Uh, for better or worse, it's a very universally uh, found upon condition, which is human trafficking, believe it or not. You know, in 1948, I think there was a global decision to morally and legally outlaw, you know, trafficking worldwide. Right. Slavery and trafficking worldwide. So there's no moral equivocation that this is a bad thing. Sadly, it's very directed by profit motive, so it's really easy for it to grow, and it looks like it's about to grow even bigger. But in the meanwhile, back to your question, the community really does and wants to figure out how they can make a difference in this particular arena. Now, hotels are the number one areas of where human trafficking takes place, right? Yes, typically. Um, right now, Polaris, which is uh, runs the National Human Trafficking Hotline, between hotels and illicit massage establishments, they run the number one and two spots in most states for the most cases reported. Okay. So it's between hotels and and illicit massage, but that comes down to what I think is, you know, when you go into illicit massage, everybody involved in that location is party to the issue. They are either a victim, they're a purchaser, or they're a facilitator or trafficker. Okay. So everybody in one spot is involved. When it comes to hotels, most people are valid travelers. Right. And so it's not as easy to uh, find the people in the hotel industry. But that's why it matters so much for us to train them, because all they have to do is notice, and then all of a sudden they see it everywhere. Now, does human trafficking just, is that explicitly uh, dealing with sex workers, or is there other forms of human trafficking out there? Yeah, so... Um, Typically, trafficking is divided into two categories, which is sex trafficking and labor trafficking. Okay. Most people can wrap their mind around sex trafficking. They can picture what that looks like. Uh, labor trafficking is a huge part of the problem. In fact, it's probably at least 50% of the presence in the United States is labor trafficking. But it's harder for us to understand it and to identify it, so it's not nearly as um, considered. But they're both uh, make up of make up the, the scenario of trafficking. Why is labor trafficking harder to identify? Well, because uh, it's possible for the people who are being labor trafficked to never actually come in contact with anybody that's in the public space. You know, by definition, sex workers, you know, prostitutes, uh, those victims being trafficked, they're business model, they must engage with the public. They have their meeting with those people, so there's a lot more opportunities for people to see them. Plus, we can wrap our minds about what that might look like. When it comes to labor trafficking, they may um, never come in contact with the public for one reason. And number two, the way a lot of it's showing up in the U.S. is they have been convinced that they owe their exploiters, their facilitators money, and they don't even realize that they're being exploited, even though they're about out of a thousand dollar paycheck, they get about thirty five dollars of it. Okay. Because um, they are convinced they have to pay back all kinds of fees. It's not 
it's not legal. It's not um, what's okay. It's just that they, they don't know any different. Then there's also threats to their family, threats to their status, threats to their own physical safety. All the things come into play, which keeps labor trafficking victims from really knowing what to do. That, in addition to the fact that they don't have any standard legal protections under most circumstances. Huh. Now, are most of these uh, victims of uh, either sex trafficking or labor trafficking, are, are most of them uh, immigrants or are some of them natural-born citizens? I mean, what, 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 what kind of breakdown are you guys seeing out there? So when it comes to sex trafficking, this is the part that blows most people's minds, is that more than 80% of sex trafficking victims are U.S. nationals, meaning oh. they're either born here or they're citizens. They grew up here. Right. So um, when it comes to labor trafficking, that number is typically reversed. They are mostly foreign nationals. The thing to note there is that they're not people who came here illegally or smuggled themselves across the border. They came here with a temporary work visa. They were sponsored by uh, a company or a corporation, and then they were uh, exploited once they got here. So most labor trafficking victims came here with a legal visa with the belief that they were going to do legitimate work and then they were taken advantage of once they were here. Okay. And this might be a good time to note the difference between trafficking and smuggling. Okay. Uh, maybe this happens where you are too, but definitely in California, we're so close to the Mexican border, people confuse those two things a lot. Trafficking is very different from smuggling. Smuggling is a crime against the border, it's a crime against the nation, and oftentimes people who are um, getting smuggled, it's a choice that they made. They paid somebody a lot of money to illegally get them across the border, where trafficking is considered a crime against the person, and they are not willing, they, they didn't walk into that understanding what they were getting into typically. So there's a big difference between smuggling and trafficking. I, I never heard that before. That's very interesting. Um, is it hard to prove uh, trafficking? Is, yes. it hard, is it hard to find somebody guilty of trafficking people? It's not hard to find them. It's hard to find uh, a state or uh, a local, whatever, law enforcement agency willing to do anything about it. What do you mean One by of that? One the biggest challenges, is, well, the biggest challenges of prosecution is that oftentimes the, wit the, the victim is unwilling or unable to testify, and it makes it very hard to prove the case. When it comes to sex trafficking, any kind of victim who has been a victim of sex trafficking is often very reluctant to testify against their trafficker in court. It's very similar to domestic violence, where they often just won't uh, tell their story, they won't testify. So many prosecutors are unwilling to take it to the next step when that is the case. Where I live here in Orange County, Orange County Human Trafficking Task Force has done an amazing job on making cases that are super solid that they can actually get convictions without victim testimony, which is unique. When it comes to human or to labor trafficking, the hard part of that is actually just getting agencies to even understand that it's a reality. So I was just in a meeting earlier today where a person who works very closely in the labor trafficking sector, they had everything that they needed. They had payment stubs that the individuals were not getting their money. They had their um, visa information had been withheld. They had the employment agency that didn't actually have a license in the nation. There's all these different things. And even with all that information, 
they still did not want to take the case. They still do not want to prosecute labor trafficking. Now, the reason why they don't want to prosecute labor trafficking is because they don't think they can win that case. It's not like they don't want to... I mean, I'm asking. It's not like they don't want to punish these people to the full extent of the law. It's just when a prosecutor yeah. take a prosecutor is only going to take a case that they're sure that they can win, correct? Yeah, that's definitely a, definitely a huge factor in deciding what they're going to do. Uh, they have to be convinced that the evidence is going to be convincing to a jury. Yeah. Uh, they also know that typically the people who are doing this are actually uh, corporate level, you know, pockets, and they might not, you know, win against that those resources. Okay. And. And oftentimes it, it, it becomes down to civil versus criminal, and there's not a lot of money to be made in civil when the victim is not available to either testify or can't be convinced that, you know, they're being treated very differently. So there's a lot of factors when it comes to not having success convicting labor trafficking. You know, it's all this stuff. an underreported, misunderstood crime here. I got to tell you, like, the theme that's running through my mind is how scary it's got to be for these people who are being trafficked, whether it's in sex or labor, because, I mean, is there any way for them to get away from these traffickers and, and actually be safe and, and you know, so, so nothing happens to them? You know, like, how long does it take for them to be separated from the trafficker? Well, a lot of that depends, and you really did identify one of the biggest challenges, is that there is a lot of mistrust in both those arenas, labor and sex trafficking, of authorities. Okay. For good reason. Yeah. When it comes to sex trafficking, they're often treated as prostitutes. They get arrested. Okay. Rather than being treated as a victim. And they don't, they're not really given much process or much consideration at all. So there's a lot of mistrust for authority and, and police work on the sex trafficking side. And that also is true in the labor trafficking side where they don't have a lot of, um, uh, support or belief in law enforcement when it comes to getting support. Not only from they're 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 often recruited in their country of origin, and they're coming from places where it's easy to convince them to do things because there's already corruption and not a lot of legal protections and law enforcement's already mistrusted there. And then they get here, and the police or their their exploiters are telling them the same story. And the other thing that happens is is that one of the tactics of a labor trafficker is to allow their documents to expire or to move them from one location to another, which immediately puts them in violation of their documents. Mm -hmm. And they'll tell them if you go to the police, you'll just get arrested and deported, and then you'll never be able to come back here legally again. So there's not a lot of faith that if they go to the police, that they will be um, heard and that they will have the protection they need. So unless they can find an NGO nearby, a nonprofit organization is really proactive, it's really set up for them to be, to be stuck in this place. Gotcha. That's uh, that's really sad, actually. So, so is I mean, it, it is. How hard is your day trying to get this stuff done? I mean, what kind of <laughs> obstacles are you running up against on a daily basis? I mean, because because everything you're telling me, I mean, it seems like you're really trying to scale a cliff right now. Yeah, it is definitely an uphill battle. And again, this um, informational meeting I was at just recently, they said despite the the, the the global agreement that this is a, that slavery and trafficking is not something that should be tolerated. It is actually growing faster than any other 
uh, illicit industry on the planet and even in the U.S. Sex, uh, labor, uh, human trafficking is going faster in the U.S. than any other crime right. than in any other country as well. Okay. Um, so what we call it is like we're just here to wash our part of the elephant. So we, we, know, we recognize it's a big problem. And we are committed to doing everything we can within our competency and within our focus. And we align ourselves as partners to do the other things. So we're trying to kind of create a holistic approach with partners and task forces and other sort of collaboration approaches that help us feel like we're making an impact. We're kind of at this, um, we're not at the very beginning, but we're pretty early on in awareness in the of the issue and really right now our biggest our biggest objective anybody who's working in human trafficking right now is to really drive awareness it's just to get people to believe it's a problem once we can get people to believe it's a problem and it's it's as common um of an understood reality as let's just say uh domestic violence has become you know before nobody knew about it nobody believed it now it's part of our everyday we understand it we are trying to get human trafficking and exploitation to be understood. Once people can wrap their mind around it, we're probably going to be able to uh, to make more more progress faster. But right now, we're just sort of planting the seeds of, of awareness. Talk to me about San Clemente. What are you guys doing there? Oh, well, uh, Steve, are you still with me? Uh, yes, ma'am. Yeah. So Steve and I are both uh, so many friends and neighbors, and we are collaborating on a couple of different uh, objectives here. One of the things that we're working on right now is um, illicit massage establishments, which is another place where labor and sex trafficking intersect, and that is a market that is unique to the Asian victim space. So in not just in California, but, you know, nationwide, illicit massage is definitely a place where we can start getting more um, more awareness because it is a version of organized crime. So Steve and I are working together. We have an event coming up uh, next week where we're going to bring the community together in a forum-type format where uh, we help drive the awareness and work with the city to establish some policies. And then Steve is going to do his part to recognize that even the best, most robust, uh, clear policies are only effective when the community is on board to help make it happen. Yeah, and I would add, uh, Yancy, Brenda did just some amazing work for the city because what she did was she looked at the, the ordinance that's currently on the books and it, it really lacks teeth yeah. with respect to uh, illicit massage parlors. And so she went to adjacent cities and she talked to the Orange County Human Trafficking Task Force and she found best practices out there and then wrote an improvement to the current ordinance that incorporates best practices. And she reached out to nonprofits in, in DC that, that keep track of these things and got all these really strong ideas that could be incorporated into the current ordinance on the books in order to make it very difficult for illicit massage parlors to operate in San Clemente. And um, I, I'm not sure I wrote this in the newsletter, but on any given day, there's about a dozen or so illicit massage parlors 
floating around this small town of 65,000 people. And how do we know that? Because you can just get online and go to the websites that review the services that these um, establishments provide. And you can read the reviews, which Brenda has done. Um, and so we've, we've got a lot of work to do, um, but uh, the... The proposed ordinance, the, the strengthened ordinance, and all the work that Brenda did has basically languished with the city council for about 18 months. And so we decided to put our heads together and combine our nonprofits in order to get the community more involved in this particular issue of human trafficking and really empower the citizens to realize that it's only going to be effective if they lend their voice to this conversation. One, they'll definitely get city council's attention when um, we get hundreds of names on a petition or people come out and they hear from this panel of experts that we're getting ready to host next week. And all of a sudden they get excited about this issue because they realize there was a problem where they might not have realized before. And they start calling city council members and asking them, what is your position? What are you going to do about this? Um, so anyway, it's a it's a win-win for both of our organizations where we can collaborate in a space that's really important for uh, both of us, uh, for Brenda in the human trafficking space and First Amendment voice with getting people to understand how important their voice is to the process of governing. Have, you, have either of you two gotten any kind of pushback on this? Um, I haven't gotten pushback, the apathy or silence maybe, but, you know, because we've invited um, representatives from the city and we really want them to be involved as well as law enforcement. And um, we have an advocate in law enforcement uh, that we're hoping we'll be able to attend. And then uh, the city just has yet to provide any representatives to speak on the city's behalf. You know, we want to balance the fact we want to get this we want to get the citizens motivated but we don't want to get them frothy. so in other words there's lots of things that they are able to do and lots of things that they're not able to do and we want to make sure we balance um, citizens opportunity with, with working within what's reasonable and what's safe and just having those represented in there will help you know temper any sort of enthusiasm to go out with pitchforks and start storming the doors of neon lit uh, massage establishment. So that is um, the pushback, not exactly. I was just talking to a uh, community member. She's a business member here in San Clemente who happens to have a business right next door to one of these suspicious locations. And she, without even knowing anything about us, she actually found us in her research because she's convinced that things were, that things were happening. She's gotten all kinds of problems. She lives in one of our, she works in one of our high-end neighborhoods, there's a, it's a uh, commercial zone where there's a Starbucks in there and dentist office and a fitness center and all that sort of stuff, and one of these businesses is a massage establishment place, and when she started pushing back about it, um, the property manager told her, don't go there, she, she was, the, the, the massage establishment representative, I don't even know who she is, you know, actually threatened to kill her, and she has that on tape. So the more she pushes into seeing what's going on, the more she's getting um, threatened and 
feeling dismissed by the city. So that's really unfortunate. She's going, she's going to come to our event. She's going to talk about her experience. So hopefully we'll be able to learn from that. Gotcha. That, you know what, Brenda, uh, you gave us a lot to think about. Uh, I had no idea it was this intricate and this difficult to be honest with you. Mm -hmm. So uh, thank you for everything you do. Sure. You know, just because I know it's supposed to be a good news story, I'm going to finish with this. Yeah. <laughs> is that the, yeah, the news, I mean, it is a big problem. And as you're listening to it, you're, you know, it does tend to be defeating and or feeling, feeling a sense of hopelessness. And, you know, if, if thinking about the victims gets your heart broken and makes you care, that's great. Um, we want to get your attention. If you spend too much time there, you end up feeling sorry for them, which doesn't really help them, and you end up feeling paralyzed, it doesn't really help you. You back up a few stages, and you just be mad at the people who are doing it, and you put your energy towards correcting or addressing the perpetrators, whether it's the purchasers, the exploiters, or any agency in between that's willing to take advantage of them. We address our effort towards really trying to go after them. How do you do that? How do you go we also know, how, do you, how do you go after those people? Well, you just work, you know, like the Orange County Human Trafficking Task Force, for example, they go after the bad guys. For us, I put my energy towards addressing the um, how to address the, the, the purchasers and the traffickers in awareness and getting them to identify them. And just that's just where my emotion lives. Like, I'm mad at them, so I do what I do to address the problem. Okay. And then the last thing is that um, I do believe that the good guys outnumber the bad guys. And the more good guys that know about the situation, the more people like uh, your listeners that hear this and want to do something about it, it just added that many more people to our army to combat this issue, that I believe that that, that will be the solution. We just need to outnumber the bad guys with our efforts to do good. Yeah. Yeah. Thank, thank you very I much, add, Brenda. Yancy, too. <laughs> I just want to give a plug for Brenda because, you know, you, you mentioned pushback and I haven't seen a lot of pushback what I've seen is just people are operating at their capacity mm -hmm. right and okay. whether it's in city government whether it's law enforcement and they've got way too many priorities on their plate and they're trying to prioritize the things that they can actually affect right um, and this many times is a crime that's hiding in plain sight. And so most people, to include many in law enforcement, don't recognize it for what it is, number one. Or if they do many times, it's not a crime that's actually happening at the time that they see the indications, right? And so it's very hard to prosecute for mainstream law enforcement. Um, and so Brenda, to her credit, has actually gone and trained all the various shifts of the San Clemente um, outpost of the Orange County Sheriff's Department mm -hmm. and um, educated them on the types of things they might see and then what to do if they were to see them. Because we might think that law enforcement gets this type of training, but they absolutely mm -hmm. do not. And you can liken it to, you know, if the average infantry guy who's out there heading out into insurgency you would think they got some sort of specialized training for whatever they're going to run into out there but it's not necessarily the case right and so brenda's organization is really focused on training 
And whether it's in the hospitality industry or for law enforcement or just raising community awareness, it's really important to to get people sensitized to the types of things that are going on right in front of them because um, the average age trafficked uh, victim in the United States is between 12 and 14. Um, and that's just, you know, when you think about it and you think about, you know, the young women predominantly, but it also impacts boys as well. Um, you know, it's just a, an atrocious crime. Mm-hmm. And um, these guys, these networks are very sophisticated and they are preying against some of the most vulnerable in our society. Right. Right. Yeah, thank you for everything you do, Brenda. Um, yeah. Well, thanks for taking an interest. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Is there anything else Remember, you'd like to say? Somebody wants, no, but somebody just once asked me, like, if I felt like I was ever in any danger for the work I'm doing, you know, for traffickers or purchasers or whatever, um, being mad and that I feel dangerous, endangered. And the answer was no, but the, the second part was, but wouldn't that be great? If we were making such an impact that we scared the we scared the, the bad actors into wanting to, you know, that they that we scared them, you know, that's that's the that's one of the outcomes we could hope for is that they recognize that this is just not a place worth active, not a place worth engaging. Right. Are you is your organization working alone, or are you working with other organizations across the country? Uh, we work with other organizations. Yeah. So. We only represent one part of the solution, and we try and find the other partners who are doing other things as well. Okay. So we work with victim organizations and law enforcement people and and other agencies or organizations who are doing something slightly different or doing the same thing or something similar somewhere else that we can kind of share resources. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, thank you very much, Brenda Wells. Uh, thanks for uh, letting everybody know what uh, what's going on with human trafficking. It's, uh, it's an important issue. Uh, like Steve, and, and you said it often goes overlooked and uh, a lot of times unnoticed. Steve, talk to me about the membership drive. How's that going? Absolutely. Yeah, so uh, the membership drive is still going on, and um, we've got a great opportunity for, one, it's people who just want to sign up for our newsletter, uh, which is free, and um, listen to the content, whether it be via the podcast or check out our Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn pages. Go to our website. All of that content is absolutely free. And we consider everybody a member. But if you become a paid member at the basic level of just $25 a year, what that gives you is the knowledge that you're helping us bring programming to those who might not be able to access it. Right. And so what does that mean? That, that means um, some people are going to be able to attend the symposium because of your generous contribution. Right. And many of our sustaining members have contributed along that line and we'll get sponsors who will say, Oh, I see, you know, student registration costs 30 bucks to go to the symposium. I want to sponsor 10 students and they will make a contribution and then we'll be able to offer it to 10 students out there. And, um, but the membership is, is a way to 
let you get an inside peek into what's going on in First Amendment voice. So should you sign up for the basic membership of $25 for the year, not only do you get a $25 discount if you attend the symposium and basically get your money back for going to the symposium, but you also get to participate in our quarterly video conferences with delegates. And you get to talk to the delegates who are out there in different states um, trying to engage the community, trying to help people find their voice and lend it to the public conversations that are important in their local community. Right. And so that's what membership is all about at the end of the day. And uh, so, as you know, it's our membership drive is continuing on through this month. And we hope that people will see the value that we're bringing, just like with Brenda's story and the I-5 Freedom Network, where we can hopefully encourage and inspire people that they are part of this process of governing here in our country. That is how it was designed by the founding fathers. Right. And if they're either, if they've been afraid of lending their opinion or they didn't feel like their voice really mattered, we're trying to convince people otherwise. Okay. We're trying to show them that the only way we function effectively as a governing body, as we the people, is by them being involved in the process. Right, right. Let's talk the fourth annual national symposium. Yeah, September twentieth yeah. through the twenty. I'm really excited. Absolutely. So, on the twentieth, uh, the evening of the twentieth, which is a Friday. Well, first, let me talk why we choose these dates. Um, every year, September seventeenth is Constitution Day and Citizenship Day, and that day is dedicated toward trying to get people to understand the principles in the Constitution and also what citizenship is all about. Right. And so we choose a weekend that is very close to September 17th, this one being the 20th and 21st. And um, the that Friday, the 20th, we will give people a VIP tour of the Capitol building in Washington, D.C., and they'll get to hear from probably a couple, maybe a few members of Congress who will come in and speak about why the First Amendment is so fundamental to our freedoms and our individual rights. And then a guided tour of some of the artwork in the Capitol building after hours. Right. So it's a really unique experience for people that are able to participate at that level. And then... Um, the following day is the, the symposium that Saturday. It's in the National Union building. Um, we've confirmed that um, our best or, or our uh, keynote speaker, Bonnie Carroll, who is the executive director of TAPS, which uh, a lot of people in veteran and, and uh, military family circles know and recognize the Tragedy Assistance Program for Survivors. TAPS is a gold star organization in that community. And they're also, basically, they have widespread bipartisan support. I mean, nobody um, argues against trying to help 
war widows right. and surviving members of military families for the most part. Mm-hmm. It is an apolitical issue. And so Bonnie's message is very much going to be that, is that there are so many challenges that we face as a country that if we can approach them in a nonpartisan manner and figure out ways to work together, there's nothing we can't achieve as Americans. And so we've got, you know, we'll kick off the event with, with a keynote speech and then we will start with our, our philosophy of how we do programming, education and awareness, arming people with tools for engagement, and then ultimately inspiring them, hopefully encouraging them to get out there in the public square and lend their voice to the important conversations. Gotcha. So um, the, the breakout sessions are going to be spectacular. I just came from the Federal Mediation and Conciliation Service. They've smallest government agency in our government. I hadn't really heard about them until last year. And they're going to send some trainers that agreed to come in and do uh, one of our breakout sessions and use some really interesting technology to do that right? in a way that allows people to share um, and learn together mm-hmm. in an interactive manner. And then we've got Kern Berry also coming back, who is just a an amazing facilitator. Right. And so that'll be, those will be our breakout sessions. Um, the space is really spectacular. It's, I got a chance to tour the national union building yesterday. Right. Here in DC. And it is, um, it's got some pretty unique history there. It's catty corner to the, the Ford theater, which is where president Lincoln was assassinated. Um, the uh, John Wilkes booth escaped down the alleyway next to this building. So it's got these really just crazy, uh, unique historical footnotes to uh, the building. That'll be interesting for our participants to learn about. Okay. Um, and, and, of course, they'll get breakfast and lunch uh, during the experience. And they're just going to hear some just amazing individuals who have been dedicated public servants throughout their lives, but whose organizations also provide the opportunity for people to serve themselves. And so if they've been kind of sitting on the sidelines, um, a lo- either a little bit scared or not feeling like your voice matters, these speakers are going to encourage them to jump in the game. That citizenship is not a spectator sport that their voice really matters and is important and we're here to help encourage them along the way i have a question for you um you mentioned earlier how sure. you know a, a lot of people out here are, are working in capacity and that's not and, that, and that's not a dig at anybody i mean everybody's out here working yeah. try, you know trying to provide for their family you know they're they're busy as heck um how do you convince people that that the first amendment is worth fighting for. Like what, like if somebody doesn't care, I don't want to say they don't care, but if somebody is just overloaded beyond capacity, what is like the one thing that you could tell them to, to, to turn on that light switch in their brain to where they're, you know, they're like, you know, I do need to care about this as well. Yeah. Well, that's a really interesting question because 
number one, what the, the way we approach things is, is we don't, we don't try to tell people what to think, mm-hmm. right? We, we, um, so we don't take a position on any given issue, but the position we will always take is that the freedoms embodied in the first amendment, freedom of religion, freedom of speech, freedom of the press, freedom to assemble and freedom to petition the government for grievance. These are fundamental freedoms that only exist if we exercise them. And part of the challenge that we've got in our, our country right now is with public education, civics has largely disappeared in many portions of the country. Mm-hmm. And our children are not being educated with respect to their roles as citizens unless we, the parents and grandparents, take it upon ourselves to do that. And what we're finding is that many of the parents and grandparents don't realize that their children are not, or their grandchildren are not being educated about civic engagement and why it's so important for them to be engaged. And so we just use education and awareness to let people know some of the trends that we're seeing. Right. And those trends may or may not apply in their hometown. Mm -hmm. But what we absolutely do advocate on behalf is that whatever the issues are that are important, get involved, be a part of the process and lend your voice to the conversation that that is vital to how our government functions. And so for the people who are, are really busy and there's a lot of people out there, but there are people looking for a cause and they want to be involved. They want to have meaning and purpose in their life. Um, what we do is we, we're happy to continue to just tee up examples for them to see how people have done that with their lives. And then we just encourage them that you can do that too. You can be a part of either this organization that already exists, or if you see the need, if there's a gap out there, you can create your own organization and attempt to get involved and um, play a role and maybe change people's lives for the better and, and have an impact on the country or your community or whatever um, level impact you're attempting to achieve. That's one, that's one heck of an answer. All right, Steve, thank you so much for your time. Well, Yancy, thanks so much. I really appreciate you uh, hosting and uh, look forward to the next time we get to chat. I think we're going to talk about Dylan's story. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, that, that is a very inspiring story for uh, everyone out there. So please tune into that episode as well. Did anything in this episode's discussion interest you? Reach out to FAV on our website to post a comment or ask a question. Just go to firstamendmentvoice.org and find this podcast or one of our monthly newsletters to provide feedback. Want to get our newsletters free each month in your inbox? Sign up on the website. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Simply search for First Amendment Voice. We'd love to get your feedback.